All right, we are back with the A Game podcast. I had some uh, major sinus surgery, so if I sound weird, that's why I thought I was going to be more recovered than I was. So I apologize. But back in action this Monday, very special episode with Gary Tonin. He is one of the most exciting, entertaining, talented, and skilled MMA and jujitsu fighters out there. Part of the world famous Danaher Death Squad out there with Gordon Ryan, John Danaher, and all those guys in Puerto Rico coming under Tom DeBloss. And of course, Henzo Gracie, BJJ in New York City. Um, but whether you like jujitsu or not, this is an amazing episode. Um, you'll see why I specifically chose him to be on. And we had a very long in depth conversation that covered all types of things as far as business and mental health and um, you know, celebrating wins and branding yourself and being vulnerable on social media and, and, and ways to be excellent and checking your ego at the door and just ways to become um, a better person, a better leader more insightful, have more accountability. This really translates into everything, regardless of whether you listen to, listen to the sport jiu-jitsu or not, you will be a fan of Gary. He's honest, he's insightful, he's funny, he's intelligent, he's controversial. I mean, he really checks all the boxes exactly why. He's got so many fans and he's such an exciting character and he's found ways to make money, not just doing jiu-jitsu. And he's always thinking with the end in mind for other ways to, to grow and to, to have vertical options, to have different types of income coming in from the same thing, which I think for anybody in real estate, anybody in business, any type of entrepreneurial things, this is exactly the kind of stuff we're talking about all the time of you don't just have to make money just doing your deals or just having your coaching programs or just posting those. There's all these different ways to monetize. There's all these different ways to grow. And that's always changing. And I think he just really epitomizes that in a very special way. And of course, because I am a huge uh, you know fan of of Gary and Hanzo and John Danaher and all those guys coming under my sensei, Matt Sarah and Ray Longo and guys like that. And people that uh, just have nothing but great things to say. Big shout out to my buddy, Marlon Suarez, who is another Hanzo Gracie black belt that hooked me up with Gary and got this ball rolling. I really appreciate him. He was on the podcast as well. Check him out for all your real estate in New York city needs. On a side note, I did have a, uh, a bit of something personal happen and I had to split this episode up when we were recording it and just, Completely being honest, uh, Gary could have been kind of a jerk about it or difficult about it or, you know, however. And the guy was just a class act. I, I really can't say enough about behind the scenes. He had every option and would have been rightfully justified to not give me more time or to hold back on some of the things he was talking about or, you know, to, to not schedule me. There's just different things. And he wasn't. I mean, I, I, I'm just impressed. Him as a character, him as a person. The the way he handled this whole thing for me, with me, um, during the episode, before the episode, after the episode, I really just, not to be too much of a fanboy about it, but the guy is just a class act. He's a stud human being. He's a stud professional athlete and uh, just can't say enough good things. Huge fan of Gary Tonin. Extremely excited that he came on. Very honored to be able to share uh, over two hours with him and be able to share it with you guys. I know you will take a lot from it. And again, thank you, Gary, for being an absolute stud and a class act about all this. Thank you so much, Gary, Tony, and Marlon Suarez. Have a great day, guys. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, 
take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-game. All right, my guest today on the A-Game Podcast is American Submission Grappler and MMA contender, five-time Eddie Bravo Invitational Champion, won titles at Abu Dhabi Submission Wrestling Championships, IBJJFW World and Pan Am Champion, known for his leg locks, part of the famous Data Hair Death Squad out of the Henzo Gracie Academy in New York City, now a title contender for one fighting championship, a black belt under Tom DeBloss and Ricardo Almeida, made a head of uh, Gary Tonin Jiu-Jitsu, has the best Instagram in the game, my mom's favorite grappler, Gary Tonin, thank you for being on the A-Game Podcast today. Yeah, man, no problem. Happy to be here. I appreciate you coming on, man. I know uh, I've been talking to our good friend uh, Marlon Suarez. He says a lot of good things about you, and the two of them obviously have been going back and forth about how your uh, your Instagram keeps us from being productive many, many days. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, just, uh, just trying to give the people what they want, you know? No, it's awesome, man. You have a really good mix of um, – you know, fun and serious. And I, I definitely want to dig into how you're using that because I think you're, you have a really good level head on your shoulders. You don't take your yourself too seriously. You have fun. You obviously work hard. And I think you, you touch on a lot of different things where people tend to go like just in one direction. Um, you know, I think that you are fun and smart and logical and you share a lot of personal stuff on there. And then there's just, you know, tons of funny things and singing and just big butts. So it's like, what's not to love? It's something for everybody, you know? That's right. So, yeah, oh, man, but definitely. I, I never really like to be somebody that people could peg down. Um, <laughs> kind of pretty much in, uh, pretty much have a, a variety of different things that I'm interested in, and uh, different personas, hairstyles, mustaches. You know, all the whole the whole gambit. I never really, uh, I never really like the idea of being too well known for one thing because, uh, you know, it it uh, I feel like it pigeonholes me. You know, and I don't I don't really like the idea of people just judging me based off of a single thing. So I like to keep people guessing and basically uh, create a situation where people have to learn more about me to feel like they know me, you know, and uh, they can't just categorize me and put me in one box, you know? Yeah, I think it's what keeps you intriguing. And I definitely want to talk about how you're building marketability for yourself, which I think is is brilliant. You're doing such a great job of it. But, you know, I definitely want to start out talking about just obviously jujitsu and talking about the down here desk squad. But when you and I first started going back and forth to book this, you had just shout out to Puerto Rico. So I know you've been kind of going back and forth between Jersey and Puerto Rico, but how, how is that all going? Oh, it's pretty good, man. You know, uh, it's a definite uh, tough adjustment. Um, you know, I think uh, I always wanted to live somewhere else, um, mostly for the purpose of just like experiencing life in a different place. I just kind of feel like by living in one, uh, one place, especially, uh, you know, all in the same uh, state or whatever the case may be, it just kind of, um, I, I think it kind of gives you a, a narrowed perspective on the world. I mean, I do, I am lucky enough to have a career where I get to travel all around the world and see life from a lot of different perspectives, but often it's only for a, you know, it's only a cursory glance. It's just like a, a little snapshot of what life is like in some of these other countries and the way that people live. Um, you know, it's very different to visit someplace compared to live there. Um, so I was always interested in moving somewhere else. Uh, I also, you know, as much as uh, I like the weather during the summertime in the New York, New Jersey area, uh, it's not so great during the winter. So it's cool <laughs> to be in an environment where like the weather is nice pretty much all the time. Uh, I know there's a hurricane season here and I have yet to experience that yet. So 
you know, I'll let you guys know if, uh, if that's worse than the, uh, the New York or New Jersey winter. Uh, but so far, so far, the weather's been uh, a great, a great departure from what I was experiencing during the winter over there. Uh, so that's cool. Um, but as far as like adjusting to this area is concerned, you know, kind of what I was saying is like a rough adjustment. Um, it's just like a very different mentality from what you would experience living on the East Coast in a, in a, a very uh, suburban or urban area. Um, it's not that there's not a metropolitan area here, but it's just very much it's, it's much more relaxed. It's not a, uh, people are not looking to get things done as quickly as possible. It, you know, we have a very, uh, efficiency based mindset in New York, New Jersey, you kind of like, you know, if you don't have that kind of mindset, you just die, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hard to survive without it. Um, cause that's how everybody's geared. Um, but here everything's much more relaxed and people take their time, you know, so it takes a little while to get it, get used to that. There's also just kind of some logistical hoops to jump through. I think anytime, you know, while Puerto Rico is part of the United States, um, it still operates very differently, you know, can, especially considering, you know, obviously it's not in the mainland United States and also just the history of Puerto Rico is different from that of most of the, uh, of the history of the rest of the United States. So uh, there's uh, different cultural and language barriers that aren't there when you just go move to another state, um, you know, within the United States. Um, so for that reason, there's a lot of kind of uh, logistical things that you got to figure out over time, how to, how to get things from certain places. Like I'll give you an example. Like I went, I'm thinking to myself, Hey, I want to buy a bicycle. So I go to Juan's bike shop. Okay. I sit outside of Juan's bike shop. I ask them if they have any bikes in my, in my mangled Spanish that I speak uh, like Vende Bicicletas. And he's like, Nope, we don't have bikes as he's riding around the bicycle in the parking lot. Uh, and uh, like I said, it's Juan's bike shop. So I don't really understand how that works out, you know? So <laughs> little things like that can be super frustrating. Uh, I remember getting mattresses into my house was a shit show because of the, uh, uh, the apartment complex, like only allows you to deliver things at certain times. Cause I guess it's disruptive of, of the piece. Of <laughs> really know. So all kinds of like little weirdness that I had to get used to, but uh, in my opinion, I'm still uh, liking it better than, than where I was living, at least for the time being. Um, you know, I just like the change of pace. Um, everything has its, has its, uh, you know, downfalls and it's, and it's problems, but, uh, so far so good. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm definitely enjoying the beach too. I've been skimboarding a lot, learning how to surf and stuff. So that's been fun. Nice. Yeah. I've been seeing a lot of videos of you uh, getting the wakeboard and the skimboard going. It's been awesome. Yeah, man. How was that mentality like coming from that New York, New Jersey? Cause I've done a like, you know, not as much international traveling, but I've done a ton all over the country for the last 10 years. And there's definitely places I go where I will bring that New York hustle and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do really well there because of that. Cause I'll kind of run circles around people. And then there's other places I go and I try and do that and it's not really cool. And I have to adapt to really kicking back. Like, you know, so there's places that it helps, but then there's other places that I have to completely adapt to because it, it doesn't, it doesn't really translate well of that. What are you finding out there? Are you forced to kind of slow your pace? Is there a happy medium there? Is it like situational? Yeah, it's, I think it's situational. I think, uh, you know, there's definitely times where probably the mentality of like, you know, moving quickly and everything like that might irritate somebody and might make it so that, you know, things might get even worse if you were trying <laughs> to force somebody to move at a, at a different pace than the, the pace that they're interested in moving. Um, you know, but overall, I, I like, I think that, you know, for, for example, like when we go to open a gym here, like while there's going to be a ton of logistical hurdles, 
to opening a gym and there already have been like, you know, we should have had a gym by now, you know, I think in the U S if we were trying, don't get me wrong. I've, I've opened gyms before and it's been a nightmare and a headache and it takes a long time. But, uh, I think if we were in the U S it would have been done already. Um, and, but once we actually have that, that finished product, I do think that, uh, I do think that we're going to be fairly successful, not just because of the fact that, you know, we have big names and, uh, you know, relatively famous for what we do. Uh, but I also think that part of it's going to be like, we're going to run a very efficient business comparative to what you experience in a lot of places out here. And it's not, it's the thing is, it's like the, it's kind of like what you said, um, dependent upon where you go, like the expectation of the people of this environment is, is exactly what the businesses in the surrounding areas bring to the table. You know, so it matches what everybody expects. Like, I don't think anybody expects to get their food within 30 minutes here. It's just because that's just the standard, like that's the normal, you know? Um, but I do think that if somebody else swoops in, you know, and opens a restaurant across the street from somewhere that doesn't do that, I, I think that people would recognize the benefits of that. Right. So I think by running like a smooth and efficient business that we could do, we could uh, make a lot of headway. So in the business world, I think it'll get you far in, in the, relationship building world or, you know, where you're trying to, you know, make friends and, uh, and establish connections, it probably makes more sense to match the, uh, mentality and the culture of the area. Right. Sure. That makes sense. I, I know you had, uh, some, some business hiccups and stuff during COVID. I know a lot of people did, but from being somebody who, you know, was just a jujitsu guy and then got into coaching and then wanted to open a gym and, you know, people don't realize until they start to do that sometimes that there's a lot of things that go into, opening and running a business that aren't always fun or people don't really always think about what kind of things did you take from that experience to help make the one in Puerto Rico more efficient? Or was it like you were saying, just a completely different animal because of the change of the scenery? Yeah. Well, it's a little different. I mean, first of all, the gym that we're going to open out here isn't going to be owned by me. Um, I think majority of that's probably be a, a John's endeavor. I would guess maybe a little bit of Gordon. I'm not hundred percent sure. I already own a gym back in Jersey. I'm not particularly, uh, it's, it's plenty of, uh, <laughs> plenty of responsibility for me. Uh, I'll probably teach there, uh, you know, when we open a gym, but, uh, as far as like owning the business or managing or whatever the case may be, I don't, I don't see myself, uh, playing as integral of a role as the gym that I currently opened, uh, or that I, I currently have. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, I mean, I'm sure that uh, little, uh, I'll be asked about certain things, you know, because, uh, out of all the people there, I'm the only one that has actually, you know, owned and operated a gym before. So I'm sure that, uh, there's going to be little things along the way where I'm going to be able to use my past experience to help. Um, cause it's not, even though I may not be the owner of the gym, uh, I'm obviously going to be an integral part of it in, in some way. Um, and I'll be working side by side with these guys, um, on, on everything that's going on. So I'm, I'm adding my input in, you know, they've already asked, we brought brought us to the location and like asked me questions about like what I think about the setup and the layout and things like that. So uh, I definitely think it, it's going to help. I mean, it's so funny because when I first started doing all of this, um, like running a running a business and owning a business, I was like 23 years old when I uh, when I got started. Um, I ended up kind of working out a deal to buy somebody else's jujitsu school. Uh, that I was teaching at because they had moved on into a different career path. They were no longer there. A lot of the other instructors faded out and I was kind of, I was going to open my own gym. So I ended up buying it from somebody else. I had to pay them a certain amount of money per month uh, in order to own the gym. That was the deal that we worked out because they knew that I didn't have like, you know, a crazy amount of money set up to be able to pay them uh, to buy, you know, outright, 
you know, the gym. Um, but I ran into all kinds of craziness that like, you just, no matter what, like I took business classes in school and everything like that. There's nothing that replaces the experience of like communicating with a landlord, uh, mm -hmm. and like lawyers and, and, uh, you know, the different, uh, government, um, people that representatives that you have to talk to, to like get things in motion, like the actual steps that it takes to like get a business open. When you, when you think about it just by itself, if you've never done it before, you're just like, oh man, like it can't be that bad. You know, like you, <laughs> you pay your rent and like you have your business and you build some things and it's like, whatever. It's like, dude, it's, there's so much more than that. I mean, you know, there's like, there's like requirements for, for parking and uh, somebody has to come by. This is the most ridiculous thing ever, by the way. Somebody has to come by and do a architectural drawing of the place. And what an architectural drawing is, just in case anybody's wondering, for a business like this, for a jiu-jitsu school, it's literally two rectangles <laughs> with the distances uh, of the perimeter of the building. That's a ar the architectural drawing. You know what I mean? Like maybe three rectangles, you know, depending on how many bathrooms you have. I don't know, you know? And that by itself depends on where you're at i'm sure but costs anywhere from two thousand to four thousand dollars like it's like the little things like that pop up out of nowhere that you have no idea and then you're you're trying to um negotiate with somebody on rent prices and like you don't know what the rent price should be or whether or not you're getting screwed over or what these people are trying to put in the contract and then like if you don't have the money to hire a lawyer to look at it you have to like just try to sift through this nonsensical, you know, multi-page document with with uh, all kinds of language that you've never seen before. It's it's a process, man. For for the average person to just start and run a business, like and anybody that manages to do it even half successfully, like man, pat yourself on the back because it is a it is a tough tough run. Um, so I'm sure uh, you know some of the experiences that I've had will will help with uh, what we're going to do out here. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many different things I want to hit on from what you just said. One of them being, you know, I, I think anything in life, one of my favorite quotes, I, I say it almost every episode at some point is how you do anything is how you do everything. And I feel like most of the things that you've done in life that you've accomplished, it, none of it's easy. You know, you didn't get to where you are by tapping out when things got tough. And I think a lot of people do that. Oh, I want to be a, an MMA fighter. I want to be a jiu-jitsu guy. They go and they get their ass kicked and they go, ah, oh, that wasn't so easy. I want to open a business. I want to make a lot of money. And then all these things happen and they go, oh, it's too difficult. I'm going to go do something easier. Have you always had that? Or did, I guess my question here is, is did jujitsu and wrestling kind of teach you how to keep rolling through when things got tough? Or is that something that you kind of always had that made you gravitate towards combat sports? It's a little bit of both, man. I think um, I always had like a certain level of, of, hard work built into me and grit and things. And, you know, now having said that, like, you know, you always kind of co go into the nature versus nurture question. It's like, was I born that way? Or like, you know, over time, like my mentors, whether it was my father, mother, uh, whoever it was, teachers, whatever the case may be that surrounded me when I was a child, maybe they fostered that, you know, or coaches that were a part of different sports. It's really hard to tell, right? You know, because your earliest memories are are kind of shaky. Like you don't really remember much when it comes to those sorts of things. So before you know it, you just assume that like you always had this, right? But like, uh, I probably think it was a little bit of both because I think that it would have been hard for me. It would have been hard for me to be as successful uh, as I was um, and as dedicated as I was to what I did if I didn't have at least a little bit of that 
uh, that type of work ethic and that type of um, that type of um, mentality that like, hey man, like this is going to be a struggle. You're going to have like a lot of bumps in the road. You're going to have a lot of failures, and that's okay. You're going to be able to pick yourself up and and continue. I definitely think that it's hard to do a lot of those things without. Uh, some level of support from the people around you as well. So I think some of that came from, um, you know, past uh, individuals that had helped me, you know, for example, like, you know, my mother and things like that. And I think a lot of that also came from um, people that I met through doing jujitsu and martial arts. Um, You know, that became a group of people that I could rely on. So like, you know, when you have those bumps in the roads, those failures, those hiccups, not only can you come to these people for advice, about what to do next, but it also is just like, it feels like a safety net. It's like, all right, this group of people has got my back. They've got, they, they've got my best interests at heart. Like, you know, when I mess up, like they're going to be there, you know, and uh, we're going to find a way to get through this. And we all have very similar hopes, dreams, goals, et cetera. Uh, so I think that helped a lot. Um, but I definitely do think that there was a pivotal moment in my life somewhere uh, in my younger years, somewhere around like 14, 15 years old, maybe 16, where I kind of had this mentality that I was going to find something that I was going to do and just be very good at it miraculously. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I make this comparison often in a lot of different interviews um, where it's like watching a Disney movie. Like in almost every Disney movie, um, there's, well, maybe not some of the cartoon ones, but like, you know, some of the ones that I grew up with that would be on the Disney channel. It would be like, hey, man, like you find like a lucky skateboard in the in the garbage or a hockey <laughs> stick or something like that. And all of a sudden, like, you know, because it's a movie, like you can only you can only go through the process of getting good at something in for so much time. Like they can't. They, that's why they do montages. Right. Like you can only spend what, 10, 10 minutes tops on like showing the progression of somebody getting good at something. So it leads your minds to believe like, oh, yeah, man, like, you know, you're just going to you're going to find that thing that you're just going to click with. And like, all of a sudden you're going to be great. And like, I did so many different sports and I never had that moment. And rightfully so, because you shouldn't, like, that doesn't make any sense. Like you don't just all of a sudden become great at something. Like it takes a lot of effort. And um, I was okay. A lot of different things. I did baseball for a long time. I did wrestling. I did, um, what was it? A bunch of different cross country track and field and different things, like all kinds of stuff, man. Um, most sports I try bowling, like all kinds of things, man. <laughs> but, um, it wasn't until I started doing jujitsu and Tom, the blast was the guy that was teaching me at the time. Uh, it was my main instructor. I, I was working with him, uh, till late Brown belts, almost black belt. And, uh, Tom was doing all of these things that like I wanted to do right in front of me, you know, like, it's like, Hey, he's becoming a world champion. Hey, he's training for, you know, mixed martial arts. He's doing all these things, kind of setting the example. Right. So it, it, like, I, I see this guy working hard, dedicating his entire life to this one thing and going, Oh, that's the way that you're supposed to do it. Like, Oh, the reason I, that none of these things ever clicked was because I never put any extra effort into it. Like I just showed up to practice like every other kid. Like, what did I think? Like I was born as Hercules or something <laughs> like, like how, how was I supposed to uh, excel above the level of anybody else without putting in uh, more effort than everybody else. I didn't understand that concept prior to this. And now, I'll, and, and it's not like people didn't tell me, but I, it just didn't click. I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. And then finally, like when I started doing jujitsu and I started training under time, he slowly kind of molded my brain to that idea. It's like, oh man, like 
you know, if you make this your main focus and this is what you're doing all of the time and you're putting in the extra effort, you're not just coming to practice, like you're watching tape, you're, uh, you're coming to extra practices, you're going and competing as often as you can, you're doing all these little extra things, you're going to be that much better. You know what I mean? And, and it started to make sense. And then, I, then once I figured that out, it was like, oh man, like this isn't going to be easy, but I have the formula, right? Like I understand what the formula is. It's still going to be a lot of hard work, but like, I don't, uh, it's not like a, a mystery to me why I'm not, why, why I am where I am or why I'm not where I'm not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense, man. I love that. You know, uh, shout out to Matt Cerro, but you know, the guys like the Matt Cerros and the Ray Longos in, in my world, watching them do those things and having them around me. And, and Matt Cerro always says water finds its own level. And I feel like with you guys at the Danaher Death Squad and what you're doing, I just heard Joe Rogan talking about it. Um, one, of, one of the recent things. And he was like, man, I was talking to Danaher and he was like, they'll train like twice a day, every day. And like, we'll go to dinner and he'll be like, we're training again tomorrow. He's like, every day is like, yeah, like there's no off days you come and you train light. So I feel like on some level, what I love about jujitsu is like you said, there's people around you that keep you honest, they keep you reliable because it's very hard to fake anything. So the level that you guys are at and the people that are around you, I feel like if somebody comes in and they say they want it, it's going to be very easy to see quickly if they fit in or not. And I feel like that translates to a lot of other things. How important has it been for translating into MMA and making these big moves to have the people around you like John and Gordon, all these guys that you, you know, are basically like sweating and bleeding with every single day, knowing that they have your back, like you said, out and off the mat. Like, because I have found that no matter what, I haven't made any stronger relationships in my life with the exceptions of maybe a couple of my best friends from when I was like a little kid than I have on the jujitsu mats. And that goes for like all across the country, guys that I've only trained with a few times, like you just click and you know, pretty quick if somebody is your person. And when you talk to somebody and somebody says, I'm a Henzo Gracie black belt, you know, something about that person without even really knowing them that they're reliable and you can trust them. And they, you know, there's, there's just some kind of bond knowing like what kind of goes on there. How important has that been helping you being surrounded by such a players? Oh man, it's, it's been huge. Um, so I'll touch on a few different points that you made there. Um, the first being um, the transition between jujitsu and, and, and heading into mixed martial arts. Uh, I think that it, it's a two, twofold thing because obviously there's some people that do jujitsu and are successful at jujitsu that never become successful at mixed martial arts or have like a, a mediocre level of success and it, they never quite, you know, catch on to what they're supposed to be doing in MMA. Um, but I, I, I think it's, uh, it's both a, a good thing and a bad thing. Um, because I was successful somewhere else, I kind of know what, what near perfection looks like, you know, like I know what like elite level something looks like. I know what's required to get there. Uh, I know what the environment's like. I know how competitive it is. I understand. I understand what that's like. The average person doesn't doesn't get that, and it's not it's not a dig or anything like that. It's just like if you. I don't care what it is. It doesn't even have to be sports. I mean, it could be business. It could be literally anything. Um, but if you haven't experienced what it's like to operate something at the highest level, whether it be a business, whether it be uh, being an athlete or whatever the case may be, um, you're a little bit blind uh, when it comes to getting to that place. And, and that's a big part of what you were just mentioning there, where you have all of these other people around you that maybe have seen that before or have experienced that before, right? 
Um, so on my way up in jujitsu, you know, I had guys like, uh, like Tom. And then eventually as I started training under John, I had John and other people in the room, um, you know, that were training with me side by side, but a lot of other people to look up, up to, uh, that had been around either high, high level athletes and been working with them or had already achieved it themselves. And, uh, and that makes it a little bit, it makes you able to see things that maybe you wouldn't have been able to see, uh, otherwise had you, because you haven't experienced that yet. Now, once I had reached that in a sport like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for example, or you know, grappling, however you want to uh, you know phrase it, um, I knew from the moment I started doing MMA exactly where I was at. If that makes <laughs> any sense, it's like I understood exactly how low on the totem pole I actually was when I started doing sparring. I'm like, I'm literally terrible at this, like. And in my perspective of how good I was at mixed martial arts was so different than it would have been had I never done, had I had never been elite level at something else, right? So I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at, you know, my jab or, you know, looking at my footwork or something like that. And I'm like, this is literal garbage. <laughs> like I, I watch video of myself, like doing sparring or something. I'm just like, wow, how could you possibly be that bad? Um, because you, you start to, to watch and look and you can see what excellence is like. Like you look and watch it like guys like Mike Tyson in boxing, or, you know, you watch somebody, uh, uh, you know, in mixed martial arts, like a Khabib or, you know, like a um, Damian Maya or something. And you see like some of the amazing things that these guys are able to do, um, you know, or like a, a kickboxer, like a Raymond Daniels or something, you know, you see the magic that these guys are able to, to do on a stage, like what the highest level of each of those kind of, uh, you know, those martial arts looks like, and then even some of them integral in MMA. And you're like, damn, man, like I am so far away from that. And it's like almost, it's like very frustrating in a way because you've tasted what it was like to be elite before. And you're literally way back down to the bottom of the barrel all over again. And uh, it's, it's hard to like, it's, it's hard to put yourself back in that place you know, once you've worked your way back up, it's ironic, actually, you know, uh, you saying that you've been around like, you know, some jujitsu and stuff, like, I'm sure you've experienced this, that there's like a lot of, a lot of talk in many jujitsu rooms about ego. And the ironic part is, is that like, as you, as you first start out, that conversation is actually pretty easy because you're getting your ass kicked every day. <laughs> right. It's like you said, you can't really hide, hide. Like, it's like, you know, it's, it keeps you pretty, pretty damn honest. It's like, I'm going to come in. And if I'm, I haven't been doing what I need to be doing, or if I'm not very good, like I'm going to get beat up. Like there's no question about it. The only way to hide from it would be for me to not train. Right. And uh, as you work your way up the totem pole, that kind of changes a little bit because now when you come into the gym, most of the people that you're training with are not beating you up, you know? So the ego is checked a little bit less. You're in bad positions a little bit less. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you maybe forget like, oh man, I got to like humble myself by putting myself in some bad positions or, you know, uh, let some people like, you know, put me in some submission holds and things like that. And before you know it, you have vulnerabilities that you wouldn't have had because every day those people, you had no choice. You were going to be in those bad positions, but now you have to, you'd have to force yourself to be there. You'd have to let the blue belt put you in danger or you'd never be there because you've been there, been around the block before, you know how to keep yourself out of those spots. So it's a, it's a little bit of a tricky thing, man. Um, but for sure, having a, a big group of people around for, uh, that not only have done it themselves, um, you know, like somebody like George St. Pierre, who I get to, I get to talk to whenever he comes and trains with us, um, to people that have worked with people and gotten them to the highest level, like a John Danaher, um, 
and having faith that, Hey man, you know, if he was able to do that for somebody else, like I'm sure he, you know, if I'm, I'm in the right place, like he's been able to do it for somebody else. I think he could do it for me. You know, I could think I could use that resource and, and, and get to where I need to go. And then what uh, you touched on it a little bit, you know, some of the team that's around me that's in jujitsu. Now I also have all these other people that are working really hard, um, you know, to be the best at what they're doing and we get to be collaborative now. And that's kind of a really cool thing that's developed working with John and working with our team is that now we've gotten so many people up to a certain level that like when we come into the room, um, you know, half the time or at least a quarter of the time when John's teaching, he'll have Nikki show a move or he'll have me show a move or have Gordon show a move and we each get our little perspective on it. Or if we're all drilling the moves that John teaches, we go, Hey, John, you know, take a look at this. This is the, this little tweak that I did to this move. What do you think about it? And we're all working together. So now it's not just one guy, you know, kind of leading. It's a, it's a collective group of people uh, leading the way and we're making innovations that would be hard to maybe make with just one solo person to make all the innovations just by themselves. Now you have a group of people making all of those innovations and it, they build off of one another. It makes it a little bit easier. Remember, if you want to do some real estate, especially the guys that are listening to this, maybe jujitsu guys and are looking for all the ways to make money so you can spend more time on the mats, go to nicknicknick.com or nicknicknick.com slash links for all the ways to touch base with me and connect with me. Uh, subscribe to this podcast and follow me on social media and direct message me on any of those platforms or email me podcast at nicknicknick.com and we can talk about ways to get you into real estate, whether you want to buy properties from me sell properties to me or find a way to partner up with me on deals, whether it's residential, commercial, multifamily, mobile home parks, uh, land development deals, you name it. There's all kinds of different things that we can start to do together uh, to make money. If you don't even know where to start, you're a beginner, you don't even really know, or you're already doing some stuff and you want to find ways to scale up, find different markets, find different exit strategies, get into different asset classes. We can have that conversation. Just reach out and let's get it going, especially if you're part of the BJJ or the MMA community and you want to start getting things going. I would be more than happy to start that conversation with you. Also, if you heard me on Bigger Pockets, check that out. Uh, we put together a very limited time checklist for ways to add value to your buyers if you're a realtor or a wholesaler. So go to nicknicknick.com slash Bigger Pockets to be able to get that for free. And last but certainly not least, I'm going to do a giveaway. I'm going to be giving away three of Gary Tonin's new DVDs, Gary Tonin Breaking Legs and Breaking Hearts. To get entered into that, go on the Instagram that I have at Invest. You can tag three friends on that. That will get you one entry. Also, email podcast at nicknicknick.com. Put your name, full name, first and last name. And in the subject line, just write Gary Tonin. That will get you a second entry. I will have that for exactly one week as we get a tornado warning. Sorry about that. It's great. I don't know if you guys can hear that. There's the tornado warning actually going off. While I am doing this podcast, that's pretty crazy. While I'm doing this intro. Next Monday, June 28th, I will announce the winner for the Gary Tonin giveaway. I will pick three winners. So again, tag three friends on my Instagram at Nick Lamagna Invest. And then email podcast at nicknicknick.com with your full name and Gary Tonin in the headlines. Thank you very much. Enjoy the podcast. That's awesome, man. I love a lot of the things that you said there. I, I, I think somebody just posted, I'm on a group chat. I changed the BJJ lab um, under Mark Turner and Damian Maya in Chicago too. And somebody just posted something like you just said that I think Danaher made a post about trying things in the gym because like the guys that are in there, that's the lab and you, you put yourself in bad positions and you try stuff there. So that way, you know what you're capable of when it really matters, when you're in a real match or a real fight. And I think that that's a really good point that I didn't think of until you said it, that, you know, as you get better, your ego checks a lot less. And I think that that's one of the reasons why immediately when I talked to Marlon, 
And he's like, hey, man, do you want to talk? I was like, Gary Toner immediately because I was fascinated with the, you know, not only because you, you like to have fun, but you go out there and you put the work in when you want to. And I think I've had so many conversations with guys that are successful in other things and they're amazing at it, like business, real estate, whatever it is. And then I start going like, dude, jujitsu, you, you got to take that work ethic. You got to go do jujitsu. Like you'll make better relationships. You'll have fun. You'll lose weight. Like it's amazing. And then they constantly don't go. And what it keeps coming back to is they're used to being the black belt or the alpha dog or whatever they are. And then yeah. people haven't been in that position of going in and now starting out as a white belt and getting your ass kicked again or being humbled and they don't like it. So the fact that you were able to get where you were and still like have enough drive to know how, how hard it's going to be to get back to that level, but still we're like, I'm just going to go do it anyway. I think this is a lot about you as a person that most people are not willing to do. And that, it's very impressive to me. I respect that a lot. Yeah. I think that uh, something that we're touching on here is that a, a lot of people, um, you know, when they're thinking about like, like happiness or fulfillment and things like that. I think a lot of that comes from, um, uh, from change, right? So uh, it's very, it's very difficult to maintain uh, a feeling like that, an emotion like happiness, for example. Um, first of all, that's kind of a conversation in and of itself. It's like, is that really what we're chasing? Cause that's kind of a fleeting feeling. Like, let's be honest, like people are going to die in our lives you know, we're going to have a lot of, you know, a lot of tough times. Like, it's not like, it's not like you, you work up to a certain level of success and you're just skipping along the block every day and like smile <laughs> on your face. Like, like, man, you can maintain a positive mentality, but you just, it's just, uh, it's non-realistic to believe you're just going to be happy 24 um, seven. But uh, I think that that change uh, is, is something worth observing. So what we had mentioned, it's like, Hey, you, you know, it's one thing to like eat shit every day. Right. It's another thing when you're eating, uh, you know, the best steak in the world every day, and all of a sudden one day you have to eat shit, right? <laughs> like it, that change, that change is is big, you know. When you're just suffering every day, like you know, I remember when, like, uh, you know, when in my uh, in my youth, when I was like not making very much money, scraping money together to drive to training sessions, and like barely getting any sleep, and like all of these things, it's like that was just life back then. And it's like totally normal. Like if I had to do some of those things now, it might be a, a lot more frustrating than it was back then because it's just, that was every day and whatever. Like, you know, you don't have very much money. You don't have very much food. Don't have very much ability to get, get the things that you want or whatever the case may be. You just got to find a way to make it happen through sheer force of will. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's easier. I think when you're in that kind of a mindset, um, to, to go and suffer and, and make sacrifices and do all of these things. Then if you're starting from a standpoint of somebody who is a great businessman or, you know, a leader in their craft or, you know, in politics or whatever the case may be, it's a little bit tougher. And honestly, that gives, uh, that, that, um, I'm a little bit more, I wouldn't necessarily say proud, but, um, inspired maybe, I don't know really know what the word is, but there's something to be said for the person who, has done that, who has been, is like a leader in their craft or field or whatever the case may be, and then still chooses to try to better themselves by putting themselves back at the bottom of the barrel in something else. You know what I mean? And I think that that is, that is what breeds that, um, those changes. And that's what breeds that, uh, that feeling of happiness. You know, if you just, if you're just sitting in stagnation, you just reach a certain point and just hope to hold on to it. It's probably not going to happen. You know, I think that almost all of the people that are very successful, they, 
don't reach a certain point in success and just stop. It's rare. You know, they're always continuing to chase something more and something more and something more. And uh, I think that that's really important. It's like what keeps us going, what's wake, what helps us wake up in the morning and, and be motivated to, to actually accomplish something or to, to continue to do better. So I think the mentality that it's okay to be, be the, uh, the worst person in the room or to not know what you're doing or, or whatever the case may be and to accept that and to continue to come back the next day is a really big deal. And it's hard to, it's hard to continue to get better without being able to do that to yourself. Man, I think that that's so, so important. Like the, the truths of all that is, is amazing. And like you say, when you're going into all these new ventures and you're not putting yourself out there, I just heard a quote that you reminded me of that all the things that we do to achieve our goals are the same things that we beat into ourselves that don't let us appreciate them when we hit there. So how much of that, like, you know, I, I got to get a blue belt. I got to get a black belt. Now, you know, I got a black belt. Now I want to, I want to do this. Now I want to compete. Now I want a submission. Now I want MMA. Now I want a title. Are you in a position where, cause you, you, you seem very self-aware and very logical, which like way more than a lot of the people I talk to, but are you able to still push yourself to hit those things, but still have enough, appreciation for the work you put in to enjoy some of the victories and the successes that you're having along the way. Like, do you ever stop and smell the roses or you're always like next fight, next thing, next place, next, whatever. Yeah. You make a really good point, man. Um, and this is something that I think as a, I think anybody who's a high achieving person needs to keep in mind. Um, it's cause it is, it does become important. If you don't, if at some point you aren't doing that, or you're just spending your entire life, just pushing on to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, um, when you look back at it all, it kind of just, it kind of just life just passes you by very quickly. And you're, you're almost wondering for a second, you, you know, after, as you look back at it all, you're like, okay, but like, what did it all mean? You yeah. know what I mean? So uh, I definitely think that there's a, there's a place for that. Um, and I think that the type of, uh, I have ADHD and you may notice it here or there. I'm going to jump from topic to topic. Um, but uh, that's something that I think, is a part of my personality that drives me to do this, this sort of thing where I jump from one thing to the next and try to, uh, you know, keep moving and achieve one thing and then go to achieve the next. I definitely think that's a piece of the puzzle for me because it's hard for me to just sit still. But I also think a part of the reason that I do things like that, um, and you speaking to, uh, you know, the fact that I often speak about things that go on in my personal life, I think a part of the reason that I do that I do things like that, and I think a part of the reason that a lot of people do things like that, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but there's definitely, there's definitely many people just like me, is that it's easy, it's easier sometimes to just move to the next thing than it is to sit there for a second in the quiet and listen to your thoughts and feelings about everything that's going on in your life at that given moment. It's almost the equivalent, in my opinion, of the cell phone. Oh, here we go. I won't just hold my hand in the air. The cell phone <laughs> that we all have in our hands, right? So on a day-to-day basis, if any of us has a smartphone, it's very, very, and even television, whatever you want to say, you know, everybody has their own little addictions. It's very, very easy for us to just distract ourselves from whatever the hell it is that's going on in our life. It's not a hard thing. Like we have so much now that's at our fingertips to just like, hey man, uh, I'm just going to go watch this TV show instead of thinking about, you know, uh, whatever depressing thing might be going on in, in, in my life. And that shit catches up to you, man. You know, like um, whether it be, I know you were kind of touching more on the positive side of things, but whether it be the negative or the positive, man, like 
over time, either not acknowledging, um, you know, your successes and kind of giving yourself that pat on the back or enjoying it or maybe celebrating it or just, you know, just kind of being in that moment and not just immediately moving on to the next thing uh, or whether it comes down to like, hey, you got a lot of repressed feelings that you're just not, you're not thinking about and you're just ignoring and be, and your way of doing that is to just move on to the next thing and move on to the next thing. I think it comes, it comes back to get you over time. I think uh, in, in the one, on the one hand, talking about the the person who's not acknowledging the positive, I think you just get a little worn out after a while. It's just very tiring. You know, when you're not, you're not taking the, the time to celebrate those things. I think it's indicative of a highly successful person to be like that on some level, because you're moving to the next thing, to the next thing. That's part of what makes you successful, but you don't want it to be the reason that, that, you know, that, that candle burns out because you're burning it from both ends. You know what I mean? But earlier than it could. You know, you could have potentially maybe have a little bit more longevity if you enjoyed things. And I've been around people like that, man. I've been around people with really negative mentalities about training where, you know, they get tapped out and they're screaming and flipping out on the mats and stuff, man. And it's like, hey, man, you can do it that way. There's guys at the highest level. I forget who it was. I, I was in a leadership class, uh, I think, in college, and they were mentioning this. There was some famous, famous tennis player. I'm sure there's a ton of them. But uh, there was some famous ten tennis player that was very well known for like having a fit like every single time uh, that he had a failure on the court. It was like, was it, was it McEnroe? It might've been. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the example that they had used was that like, yeah, man, like the guy was still able to be successful, but, and then they used somebody else as an example. Uh, this person had a different mentality and, and they had a little bit more longevity. And this person, you know, was only able to be successful for a shorter period of time. I'm not going to say that it, it, you know, it's a guarantee, uh, but I definitely think, um, I definitely think in terms of like your, your whole being as a human, um, you're going to have a better time if you, if you do things that way. And it's going to feel, it's going to, all those things that are, you're seeing as good and success and all those things are, are going to be that much better and that much brighter if you actually take a chance or take an opportunity to acknowledge them. I try, man. I'm not going to pretend that I'm the best at it. Like I said, uh, I do have a, a tendency to not stop and smell the roses. So uh, it's definitely something I'm, I'm cognizant of that I, that I need to work on. And uh, I try to do it as much as I can. Um, yeah. That's good stuff, man. I, I love that. And I, again, I think another thing you touched on that I've heard you say in the past is so like some of the mentors in your life have taught you what to do, but also you've learned from them like, okay, I, I don't want to do stuff like that. I don't want to be like yeah. that guy. I know that that was <laughs> impressive too, because just like you said with the social media, like sometimes it's not always about like the positive, it's also acknowledging the negative and knowing like, I don't like this feeling, or maybe I do need to feel this to teach me not to do those things again. So, you know, I, I think it's all important. I think it all shapes kind of where you go and, you know, touching on that with social media. And then I, I definitely want to talk about some of the stuff that you're doing uh, on the business side, but like a couple of the things that I, I really like that you did um, the, the Hanato podcast you were on was my favorite of his by far. I thought it was hysterical. And then Dude, I always love Stephen Lynch and I haven't heard anybody bring up his name forever. And then you jumped on and you you did like the Stephen Lynch covers and I thought it was awesome. But then like 10 minutes later, maybe not like that realistic, but now you're talking about the problems with your dad growing up and all those kind of things. Yeah. So like you said, I know you touched on in the beginning that you don't want anybody to really be able to peg you or just when they think you got you figured out, you're turning another corner. But how much is that like, is, is that something that's also helping you being able to get that stuff out there? Because I feel like social media could be a weapon or a tool and people use it for very different things and they get very different reactions. And I know like, you know, watching comments or reading com like the comments you get versus the comments that Gordon gets versus, you know, it's all very different, but you all use it in different ways. Is that healing you or helping you at all to share that stuff? 
Yeah. So there's a couple of different things to consider here uh, in terms of like sharing uh, certain aspects of my life. Um, so first thing is to understand that while, while I am opening up about these things on social media, I'm also doing a lot of the things that are necessary to heal from these things uh, that are, that are really important. I think, I think only opening up about things on social media in your life and not like doing the work to process those emotions and, you know, whether it be, you know, maybe counseling is not for everybody. I personally think it's a great thing. I, I've been doing it for, for a while now. I really like it, um, you know, but doing something, whether it be meeting with some sort of a support group or whatever it is around some of the things that may be, you know, giving you a lot of trouble in your life. Uh, for me, it was, uh, you know, it was issues with uh, drug and alcohol abuse with different family members, um, specifically my father, but there was, there was many, many others that, that I grew up with. And I'm sure for most people that, uh, they have at least one family member or close friend or relative that, you know, that has struggled with these things. Um, so in addition to opening up to the public about those, those things, I also did like a lot of, of work on myself privately, you know, whether it be with meeting with a counselor, whether it be with having open discussions with my family, having discussions with my father, having like, you know, I did so much so much that's necessary outside of that. You know, you guys only get to see the part where I'm, I'm coming to you guys. And I did mention some of that um, in what I was talking about, but I think that's the first thing that's, that's important. Uh, the second thing to note uh, is about vulnerability in general. So while I, I think that in my general profession, uh, <laughs> I'm surrounded by a lot of high testosterone males, okay? <laughs> so because of that, um, the idea of letting uh, the world or even other people, other men especially, see your emotions or wearing your emotions on your sleeve or any of these sorts of things, let's say at the bare minimum, it's not incentivized, <laughs> okay? Um, so it's uh, it it's ten tends to be met with like a lot of talk about, hey, you know, fucking uh, quit being a pussy and, you know, this sort of, this, that's the sort of conversations that men have with one another when uh, when they're in emotional distress. And that's, that's kind of the point that most men get to very rarely do, do many men get to get the opportunity to process their emotions and learn how to open up to certain people, whatever the case may be. Um, I'm lucky enough to have, like I said, I go to counseling, but I'm also lucky enough to have a few people, um, you know, in my, uh, friend groups and, and things like that, that I, I feel like I'm, uh, have a good enough mindset and have a good enough relationship with me that I can open up with these people and have these conversations with them and not just get advice, but just have them listen in a way where I don't feel like there's a lot of judgment and a lot of, uh, you know, that, that same sort of feeling, like as fun as it is to call each other pussies and shit. Like, I love that. Like, don't get me wrong. I would never replace that for the world, but it's so much fun. And it's a great thing. And people that like, some people need that also. Like, I definitely think that there's a bit, like, if you're, if you're just soft serve ice cream all the time, like, I mean, there's a problem for sure. I think you need a little, you need a little bit of both. Like you need to be bullied a little bit. You need to, you need some of your friends to, to uh, you know, to, to beat you down, um, to make you, to make you tough. But uh, one in the same, you also need close people that you can, you can talk to a lot of these things about. So that's the other thing too, is like, while I'm opening up uh, to you guys on social media about these things, I'm also, you know, finding like close people to me that I can open up to and, and, and process these things. And, uh, Something that you that you see when you're you're entering into the conversation of vulnerability often, and you see this, I would say more so with women, but occasionally you do see it with men a lot. 
um, is kind of this, this oversharing uh, that goes on and it appears vulnerable on the surface. I don't really think it's genuinely vulnerable because if you don't understand, if you, if you don't ever set any boundaries with your vulnerability, I don't know if it's really, if it's really vulnerable. It's like, uh, how, do I, how do I explain this? Like, if you're not afraid of something and then you go do it, are you really brave for doing it? Not really, right? So if you don't, if you're not embarrassed in any way, shape or form about whatever it is that you're, that you're doing or you're, you don't have any anxiety about it, no fear, nothing, and then you go do that thing, there's nothing particularly brave about it. There has to be some level of fear, anxiety, uncomfortability with, with that in order to be, to feel that for, for that thing to be brave, for it to be like a, to be that sort of thing. So I think some people just get in this habit of literally pouring out all of their dirty laundry for everybody to see. And I don't necessarily think that that's the healthiest thing in the world. Um, I think that the reason that that tends to happen is because maybe they don't have as many close people around them to be able to share these things with. So they just like all, any emotion that comes to their mind at any given point in time, they just, they just let that all out. And, and for sure, I don't think that that's, that's the way to do things either. Uh, but then there's also people, like I said, many of the people that I'm surrounded by that just bottle everything up and never say a word. And I definitely think that there's a happy medium there. I would say that the main reason that I felt the need to, or not need, but the want is more, is a better way to describe it, to share these sorts of things on social media was not so much for me. That, that was helpful a little bit, but it was also more for other people to hear and maybe take some of like my experiences and feel like, oh man, I'm not the only one that feels that way. You know, oh man, I'm not the only one that's experiencing this, that sort of thing. I think that if you're, if you're unleashing your life problems to the internet and the reason that you're doing that is for you, it might not be the best. I, I think you can get your needs met in better ways. You know, I think that, I think it's probably better for you to find some close friends to do that with. But for me, the reason that I felt that I was doing that while yes, it may have get led to some benefits for me and maybe makes me a little bit more comfortable talking about those things and, and experiencing them or whatever the case may be. I think it was more for the purpose of bringing the, the conversation to light for other people who may be struggling with the same thing to see that somebody uh, that maybe they look up to, you know, not talking, I hate to talk too well of myself. It's another problem. <laughs> A problem that I have, but uh, you know, maybe somebody that they look up to sharing similar problems and hoping that that maybe that would help somebody else by hearing the struggles that I went through. Um, you know, so that's that's kind of what I think about that. I think that's awesome, and again, I, that's why I'm really intrigued with the stuff you do because you, as much as you're funny and and put goofy stuff out there, you also do have a good grasp that there is a sense of responsibility and you're using it for good. Because I think exactly like you said, having people out there that you know, Matt Serra always says it. He's like, man, jujitsu. He's like, our gym is the land of misfit toys. Like we all wound up fitting up here because we don't fit in anywhere else. And then when people are coming there and they they have things like COVID going on and they don't have a place to release whatever mental stuff's going on or or outlets. And then looking up to a guy like you who's a pro MMA fighter, 
And then hearing you say that, you know, I deal with these things. I talk to people about it. You know, I think take some of that stigma away of like, you know, I'm not a little bitch if I have things I need to talk to people about and stuff like that. And I think it's important to hear that from, you know, like you said, from their heroes, man. I think that that's awesome. Rolling into the the Gary Tone in business, I love, again, you you definitely share your multiple personalities and all the different things that you like and enjoy on social media, but you've definitely built a brand for yourself there. And uh, I, I've heard... Uh, it referred to that you guys have bought WWF to BJJ and now people are actually like watching it, you know, with the whole thing with the slapping of Gail Vow. And it really is, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's bringing guys to the sports, making the sport more popular. And you were one of the most polarizing figures in that. Again, I was even talking to some of, um, you know, some of my buddies that are black belts from the ages of 25 up to almost 60. And they're like, man, I love Gary Tone. Like, I love to watch him. The guy's a great time. He's a great fighter. He's a great instructor. So you definitely appeal all over the spectrum. And obviously, fighting is fun for you, but it is about money. It is about business. So I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the things you're doing. Cause I know you have um, like skilled violence. You have your apparel cash chicks championships. You've got a bunch of DVDs. I just picked up your new one, uh, breaking legs and breaking hearts with Gary Tonin. So, um, you know, obviously you got the, the, the shirts right here, your mom's favorite grappler. So just talk about how you're, you're, you're really building the Gary Tonin brand and some of the things you have going on. Sure. So let's address a couple different things. Uh, the first is kind of like drawing back to what you were talking about. Uh, with the sport and um, kind of building, uh, I guess, a, a, a living or a business out of uh, competitive grappling or, you know, now for me fighting. Um, John kind of sat down and had a conversation with us, John Denher, our teacher. And he said, like, um, you know, there's more to uh, professional competition than just white, like winning, right? Like it, it, there's a lot more to it than that, like in terms of, in terms of making money you know, and being a successful, uh, successful individual. When we just talk about winning, like that's great for amateur level competition, right? Like if there's no, uh, if there's no money on the line or anything like that, then like winning is the only thing that matters, right? It's pretty much like, doesn't really make a difference whether or not you're, uh, whether or not you're exciting, doesn't make a difference whether or not anybody likes you at the end of the day, it's all about winning that gold medal. Um, and don't get me wrong. <laughs> I definitely think winning is a component of being a successful uh, professional mixed martial artist or uh, martial artist in general, um, but it's not it's not all that there is. There was plenty of people, you know, that had a high degree of success that didn't uh, and, and were winning medals and things like that that didn't were not able to leverage that into a large amount of money or a re, or even uh, enough money to make a living. I would say, I think that for the longest time, most people just kind of opened up jujitsu schools. Um, and they entered into the business world that way. And it's just certainly one way to make a living, uh, doing jujitsu. It's not easy, right? Uh, it's not competing. It's a totally different thing. Um, it's definitely one Avenue and we'll get to that in terms of, you know, uh, diversifying, uh, you know, how you're making money, doing what you love. Uh, cause that's something else that I want to touch on, uh, in a minute, but there are other components to it. You know, like you had mentioned, like likability, like having a personality, having, uh, being something that. Um, you know, people see and it, it, it makes them, um, it allows them to be entertained in some way. It, it doesn't all happen in the environment uh, of, the, of the competition. It can, right? And I think that that's something that I brought to the table, right? I think that uh, probably there's not much of an argument uh, for this, that I'm probably the, be the most exciting uh, grappler that uh, has ever done the sport. Um, I'm sure some people would argue more than likely, which mostly has to do with bias, I would guess, that anybody <laughs> would argue against that. I, I don't really know. I don't know anybody that's going to be able to put together like a, a much a, a good argument against it. 
um, from a logical perspective, because I, I really believe that uh, I've had the most like movement based, um, you know, chaining attacks type of matches that, and not just attacks, like attacks and defense, right? Like that's something that you see in my matches more so than other people. A lot of people um, tend to be very much more conservative. They're not willing to give up, uh, you know, position or submission hold or anything like that. And I'm far more willing to do that. I have a whole DVD, you know, speaking of my DVDs and stuff that is dedicated to not just defending submission holds, but defending and then attacking. And it makes it so that, hey, man, it's like you're, you're excited because you see me in bad positions. You see me in good positions. And you're also you're always seeing transition. I had asked uh, I think we, I might have mentioned this on the podcast. It's hard to say because uh, I don't remember everything that I said the last <laughs> time we talked. But uh, what was I going to say? Um, that a lot of what people find exciting is movement, right? Um, it's just like the change uh, from one thing to the next. Um, that's what people are looking to see. Otherwise, you're like watching paint dry, right? Like when you, two, you see two bodies and they're not moving, I mean, something very technical could be happening. You know, somebody could be doing something very good, but it doesn't really mean much to the onlooker. Certainly not the, un- the certainly the uneducated onlooker doesn't understand what's going on. So there's, they're not going to find it entertaining, but even the person that does the sport, like I, myself, I watch matches all the time and I'm like falling asleep watching (laughs) matches. I'm trying to learn from them. Most of the time I'm watching it for education, not because I want to be entertained, but it's like hard to watch sometimes because of the way people choose to grapple. Um, So that was one of the ways that I did it. I had a very entertaining style. It's not the only way though. For example, Chael Sonnen is not the most entertaining mixed martial artists in the world in terms of actual fights like it's kind of like um for lack of a better word a boring style he just kind of takes people down grinds them out throws a few punches from guard like it's not it's nothing he's not throwing crazy spinning back kicks and getting flash ko's that you know that people love and he's not necessarily he's not really getting into like these stand-up wars with people where they're swinging left and right and it's it's not a style that people are like oh man i really I really want to see that fight for what's going to happen in the fight. He made a, he made a living out of what he did and he, he gained fame uh, because of what happened outside. You know, he would talk a lot. It's very similar to Gordon. Now Gordon has, is also a very winning athlete, right? And Kel Sonnen was, was very, uh, was a very winning athlete also. Uh, maybe not to the same degree in his sport as Gordon is in his sport. Um, but uh, you know, Gordon does a similar thing, you know, outside the mats, he's constantly doing things on social media to get a rise out out of people and to get a conversation going and stuff like that. Um, so these are other, there are other components of being a professional where you're trying to make money, right? Because at the end of the day, it's it, like I had mentioned before, it's not about just winning the gold medal. It's about doing that and having people want to watch and not only want to watch, but are willing to pay to watch, right? Or, or eventually, and when we'll get to this, the second part of this conversation, pay for other things involving you. Um, <clears throat> And that's, that's a tricky thing to do if you're only winning matches. Cause there's a lot of guys and this is how it was in the sport. The sport was a very amateur based sport for a long time. A lot of people just won matches by like, you know, getting an advantage for those who are listening to this podcast and don't know what that means. It's basically like a slight one up on the, on the opponent. There's not really much to it. Like getting an advantage could be something as simple as putting somebody's, you, somebody could be propped up on a shoulder and you could flatten them out. And that could be an advantage in our sport. There, there are things you get advantages for that are, are very, very minor. It's nothing that's, you know, overwhelmingly exciting. You know, you get points for things like a takedown. You get points for mounting somebody, taking their back, you know, very extreme positional exchanges, right? An advantage, not so much. But people are, would win tournaments, you know, on advantages. And 
that's great in an amateur level, but nobody really, nobody's going to want to sit in a seat and pay money to watch somebody do that. And furthermore, it's, it's something that I talk to my students about. I'm getting a little off topic here, but it kind of goes along with the same, uh, with the conversation a little bit. I have conversations with my students. I'm like, yeah, guys, like, you know, if you're not competing professionally and you're not trying to make money and you go out and compete, you could hundred percent just like lay in somebody's clothes guard and, and not do much and probably win. But like, when you go to show the video of that to one of your family members who you're excited to tell that you do jujitsu, are you really going to want to show them that? Are you even going to be able to say, Hey guys, this is jujitsu. And are they going to watch it and be like, Oh, I get it. Or like, Oh, that's awesome that you do that thing. Do you want them to look at it and be like, "Uh, okay, cool, man. Like whatever. I I don't know. Like I I have a personal, like a a certain sense of pride about that for me, man. Um, About like making the matches exciting, entertaining and something that people would want to watch, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, that's, I just wanted to say that about the, uh, about like making things exciting about making money in our sport. You got to be able to put butts in seats and paying butts in seats. Right. Um, so it could be drama outside. It could be excitement inside the ring. Um, you know, uh, it could be, uh, you know, not even just an exciting style where there's just tons of movement, like, you know, somebody like Tyson, who's going to, you know, you, you know, you're going to expect a very explosive finish or something like that. Right. Um, all of these things, you know, play some sort of role, even gimmicky things, you know, having some sort of, um, you know, some people will dress up in costumes and things like that and play characters. Right. And even kind of going back to Kel Sonnen, like Kel Sonnen played a character, right? Like he wasn't, that's not like really who he is. Like when you go to talk to Kel Sonnen, like he, he plays it, he's playing a character the entire time. You know what I mean? If you met him in person, it really wouldn't be the same person talking to you about, you know, uh, feeding a, a bus a carrot. And, <laughs> uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the same conversation. You know, he's a funny guy, but like, that's not, it's not like how he's going to be like in person. Right. So um, yeah, man, people, people that are the most successful they know how to sell themselves in different ways and know how to, how to uh, put those butts in seats. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. I think I did a good job. I think Gordon did a great job and we're, we're trying to continue that. And Hopefully that, that kind of continues to go and people have conflicting opinions about it. There's always like a purist attitude in the sport of the average guy that, that does it or not the average guy, I guess, I guess, you know, somebody that's obsessed with the sport and, oh man, why does it have to be about, you know, drama and this, that, and the other thing? It's like, well, if you expect us to be able to do this on a professional level and people are going to pay for it, like that's kind of part of the deal, you know what I mean? And that's just the way that it is, you know, and uh, it's not a, uh, uh, it's not a sport. It's not such a mainstream sport where um, it's possible to just like play the game really well and that's it and still be successful. You know what I mean? You don't need any degree of drama to be a successful football player. You know, you can, and like somebody that does create a certain amount of drama is probably going to make more money than the next guy, but um, you don't have to, right? Like there's probably plenty of people you just barely know about. You just hear about them, you know, for their accomplishments in the sport, but it's just very different when it comes to a niche sport, uh, like jujitsu or mixed martial arts. Um, and then the second part of the conversation that I wanted to have about this was the idea you, you had mentioned a bunch of different things, um, that I do to make money. And that's something that I've always thought was really important for people to understand about whatever it is that they, that they want to involve themselves with. Um, cause I think there's always kind of that conversation out there. Oh man, like, you know, you want to, you want to get out there. You want to do what you love. Well, yeah, that's great. And like, of course, I think anybody would, would want to do that. Um, but you also want to be able to make a living while doing it. You don't want to do what you love and then not be able to eat when you come home. Right. So, um, I think 
is, is everybody going to be a world champion in jujitsu, even if they want it, even if they train as hard as they possibly can? No. Um, do I think people have more potential than they think they do? Absolutely. Do I think that, uh, do I think that through, through finding the right training, uh, finding the right training and, you know, dedicated training and all these things, you can really increase your odds. I absolutely do think that, but there, at the end of the day, there's only a certain number of champions that are going to be out there. Right. And there's only a certain number of people that are going to be relevant in the sport and be able to make money and this, that, and the other thing. But having said that there are a lot of avenues that you can go here. Like your main income doesn't have to be just competing successfully. You know, um, me and myself and Gordon and a couple other people, maybe like Keenan and a couple other people, like maybe could have made a living if we chose to off of just competing and like just making money. It wouldn't have been like an amazing living, but we could, we could absolutely have made a living, right? Not too many people, not too many other people in the jujitsu world would have been able to do that without opening a school or doing other things. Right. Um, but like all these other things that you can do possibly, uh, you know, sorry, jujitsu is the thing that you love, right? All right. So maybe possibly teaching, right? That's one avenue where you can make money. Uh, maybe you get into uh, apparel that's involved with jujitsu. That's another avenue to make money. And then this is like, you know, I have my own brand cash championships. I, I work for apparel companies like skilled violence, you know, there's some opportunities there. You have things like sponsorships, which obviously play, you know, you have to be a certain level in order to get that. But um, you know, same sort of idea, you know, uh, that's another avenue to make money around the, the thing that you love. Um, teaching in terms of like making videos, you know, now we're talking about like actually charging for content on some level. And this is another way that we can start to make money. Um, and these are things that I was thinking about like way before, like this even became like a huge sport and I got involved in it or anything like that. Like I was thinking to myself, okay, like Gary, cause when I first started, I was thinking, I'm just going to run a jiu-jitsu school and that's how I'm going to make money. Um, I was like, okay, like, yes, you have the school, but like, how are we going to maximize this? Like, you're going to have the school, like the students need apparel, right? They're going to be part of your team. Like you should probably have an apparel company. Like these are all things that I had already thought out well ahead of get, even getting involved in these business ventures. And it's the type of thing that if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, I think that's the way, that's the way you need to be thinking. Is like not just hey I'm gonna do this thing that I love, but also I'm gonna do this thing that I love. And what are all the different avenues that I could possibly explore to make money doing that thing that I love, or even surrounding that thing that I love? You know, because again, not everybody is gonna be Michael Jordan. Not everybody is gonna be Gordon Ryan. Not you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Like it's just not it's not a realistic thing to think. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of other avenues to become successful. You could open up. Um, you can open up a tournament organization, for example, and a lot of people are very successful at that. And all these things have a lot of, a lot to it. It's not like it's easy to do, right? But there are still avenues within something that you'd be very interested in where you could make money and you could, you could go into business ventures. And some of those that I had mentioned, maybe something that I do in the future one day. I just only have so much time on my hands. Like maybe one day, like after my competitive career is over, I'm like, hey man, what's, what's another way that we could, you know, be involved with the sport and make money? Like, We'll do a, a, you know, a Gary Tone and Jiu-Jitsu event. You know what I mean? Where I'm, I'm hosting, uh, you know, matches and stuff like that. Why not? You know, it's something that I like to do. It's, you know, it involves stuff that I, I do have some knowledge about. I might not know everything about that, but I do, I've done it for a long time. So I know, I know parts of it and I have resources and a network surrounding me and all those sorts of things. Right. So it's just something that I think anybody that's listening to this, that even if you're not involved in Jiu-Jitsu, and you're just involved in, in some other niche activity that, you know, maybe it's not the easiest way to make money in the world, you know, just doing that activity, just 
just really try to be creative and think about there's probably a lot more ways to make money than you're thinking, you know, uh, off the top of your head. Um, and uh, the people that are doing that sort of thing, I think it's, it's hard to, in the end, it's hard to fail as a whole. You're going to fail at a lot of shit, but, yeah, but by the end of it all, I think you'll be successful if you keep trying to figure that kind of stuff out. And you're, you're constantly trying to innovate, constantly trying to find new avenues to do that. But yeah, man, um, so I have my jiu-jitsu school um, out there, uh, Gary Tonin Jiu-Jitsu. It used to be Brunswick BJJ. Um, I have a few affiliates. I think I mentioned uh, Immortals, Harbor Jiu-Jitsu, and um, All In Jiu-Jitsu. These are some of my students that opened up gyms, um, and they're doing pretty pretty well right now, which is awesome. Um, I have the Cash Chicks Championships brand, but I also have the Gary Tonin Jiu-Jitsu brand, which is like my personal thing. Cash Chicks Championships is more of a, you know, broad spectrum thing um, where we put out, you know, all different kinds of stuff. It's not always just related to me. Um, so we got some apparel stuff going on in those, in those avenues. And then, like you said, instructional videos with BJJ fanatics. I have uh, four of them out now. I think the submission escape DVD, um, the breaking legs, breaking hearts. Um, there's a stand up one, which is shoot to kill. Um, I might be forgetting something. Oh yeah. Yeah, the unifying the system DVD, which just kind of changed all the different uh, systems that we use um, uh, together, you know, so you could kind of go from submission to submission system. Um, so, I mean, yeah, man, I'm already doing a lot of what I had said, you know, before, but those are some examples. I have to bring them up, obviously, so people hear about them and, you know, I'm promoting myself a little bit here. But, um, but yeah, man, it's definitely something for, for, for an aspiring entrepreneur or athlete or whatever the case may be to think about. Uh, as they're moving forward uh, in their career, for sure. Man, I think that that's all great stuff. You know, obviously you're doing a great job of it because you stick out. Like I said, people of all age ranges, personalities, shapes, and sizes all know who you are. And I think uh, like you were bringing up Gary, um, uh, Chel Sonnen, you know, I, I wasn't really sold on him initially with his, his whole shtick. I was kind of like, ah, you know, but then I actually heard him on a couple of podcasts and when I finally realized it was a shtick, and I was yeah. like, man, this guy's really smart. He's well-spoken. Like everything he's doing is intentional. He's a business guy. I liked him a lot after that. You know, I think some of the differences there is like the McGregor's and the Chael Sonnen's and guys like you, you're authentic. And I think that's where some of it doesn't work for certain people because they're going yeah. with what they think people want to see. Like, you know, not to like call them out, but almost like the Colby Covington's of the world that people are like, it doesn't feel like it's him. So people don't buy it. Whereas you and yeah. like Gordon, all you guys are taking who you are and just accentuating it and spreading it out. And I think, I think that that says a lot because people realize that it is like, even though they're different versions, they're all versions of who you really are. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I think there's kind of like a conversation to be had. Right. And this is like a very, I would say like kind of almost like a Machiavellian kind of conversation that we're going to have here um, where it's like, one of the reasons, uh, just so for those of you that don't know, Niccolo Machiavelli wrote a book called The Prince, which is, is relatively controversial because he goes into detail of uh, different leaders that, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about leadership, they're, they're typically talking about very positive leaders, right? So he goes into uh, pretty uh, intense detail about some historical situations where there are some leaders that did not have the most virtuous intentions, but still were very successful, right? So the, they massacred large numbers of people, maybe stabbed people in the back and still were very successful people, right? So, um, you know, to have that conversation about like, you know, maybe somebody doing a shtick that's not like, you know, it's not real or it's not 100% them. Part of it is, um, part of like a, like a, the shtick, I think, 
uh, for anybody and even myself included is kind of playing up whatever it is that you already have. And I don't think, I think that that's something that even if you're being very authentic, I think it's probably something that's worth exploring. It's like, Hey, like whatever, whatever it is that makes me a little bit different or interesting or whatever the case may be, how can I kind of elevate that? How can we pull that out a little bit? Or even if you're not going to be quote unquote inauthentic, how can I show, how can I emphasize those qualities a little bit more? And that might help you give a little bit more of an authentic feel. Um, but in, in terms of these people that you say, maybe like it's not them or they're doing like a, a shtick that's like a lot of people that doesn't stick well with people. It's kind of, I think the word that most people would use would be cringy, right? <laughs> um, there's, there, it's still on some level makes them successful. It's just in different ways. It's kind of like, uh, I, I forget, somebody framed it like this one time where it's like, you know, uh, somebody who, somebody who's like very likable um, might not have the same fame as somebody who would be infamous per se, but the person that's likable you would consider inviting to dinner. Whereas the other person, yeah, they're probably, they're famous, but like you wouldn't be like excited to have them over for a cup of coffee to talk to them, if that makes sense, right? Or maybe you wouldn't be as excited to wear their t-shirt, for example, right? Because it's like, oh man, I'm representing this thing that's, you know, that I really don't appreciate. So there's a little bit of a balance between fame and infamy and you know, I think both are avenues to success. And, you know, again, going back to that Machiavellian conversation, I think you could do a lot of cringy shit and a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that's inauthentic and still be very successful. And I wouldn't knock somebody for doing that, but just know that as you start traveling down, as you start traveling down that Avenue, that there, there's going to be some flack that comes with it for sure. You know, like if Gordon thinks that like, he's just going to do whatever he does on social media and nobody's going to hate him for it, or nobody's going to talk shit or nobody's like, I mean, you're attracting that energy by being the type of person that you are, which again, it's fine. Right. And, and very well may work out in your favor, but there's, you know, there's kind of both like two sides to that coin. Right. And I think that a Colby, like, despite it being super cringy and all that stuff, I mean, in a way it works for him, like in my opinion, right. In a way it made him more marketable, like, uh, or more marketable. I don't really think I even, ironically, because Colby had an amazing record. Like Colby was fucking killing everybody. I mean, does it, how many losses does he even have? I don't know. I think he's, he's only got one. Does yeah, he, like, he only lose to Kamara? Yeah. And like, and dude, like that loss was like close as fuck. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not like, it's not like he got like destroyed by, I mean, got caught by a punch. I mean, he got legitimately knocked out, but I, I personally, and you know, maybe this is me being biased. I don't know. I personally think that you do that fight uh, you know, 10 times. And I think Colby comes out six times on top in my opinion, but who knows, you know, hopefully we see it again in the future. Um, I don't know why we haven't yet because it was a very close fight in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, having said that he had a crazy winning record and like, I don't think I really heard about him at all until he started doing all of the cringy shit that he was doing. I just, I had no idea who he was. I just didn't, you know, it's like, it's a crazy thing. And it's like, I don't know. Some people might, might hate it. And some people might, um, you know, think it's bad for the sport or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, like, you know, our, his name's in our mouth right now, as we're doing this podcast <laughs> for the very reason that he is doing what is he's doing. So it is accomplishing exactly that task. He's getting attention. He's getting talked about. Right. So I, I don't know. It's something that you gotta, each, each individual athlete has to figure out, you know, what's going to feel, you know, feel good for them and that they're going to be able to like, you know, maintain and keep up and, 
and be able to, you know, sleep at night saying the things, that, <laughs> saying the things that they're saying and doing the things that they're doing and, you know, being on video or recorded saying whatever it is that they're doing and they have to be able to be comfortable with that. And if, and if you are, and you know, then, Hey man, do it. Uh, yeah, man, I, I agree. And, and I think it also does come to circumstance sometimes because the story I keep hearing is that he was about to get cut and he had to create this like polarizing character that people wanted to watch, whether they wanted him to win or they wanted to see him get his ass kicked. Like he needed to do something to get attention to save his job. So, you know, it, it's, it's like anything else, you know, in business, when your back's up against the wall, sometimes you transform yeah. to whatever it is out of necessity. So, you know, I don't, I don't hate on it. What's his name did the same thing. Um, the, uh, who beat Demetrius again? I'm trying to remember. Um, oh, Cejudo. Cejudo. Cejudo did the same thing. I mean, I had, I, I remembered Cejudo fighting Demetrius for the first time. I remember watching that fight and going, man, this guy, cause I mean, the people that they fed to Demetrius over the years, you know, Demetrius was a, was a great athlete, but that division was just never a very, uh, was never a very stacked division. Um, it's getting better obviously, but it was just not a stacked division. So like, you know, they're, they're reaching, they're grasping at straws, trying to find opponents for this guy that to make an interesting storyline for him to be able to fight back in the day. Right. And, you know, was Cejudo, I don't really know what his record was at that point, or maybe he had been being very successful. Maybe he very well earned his spot uh, to fight Demetrius up until that point. I don't know. But either way, it was kind of like one of those situations where um, it, it almost happens in the women's division all the time where, you know, pe they're, because there's not as much talent and they're looking for, for, for people to fight the title holder, a person gets up to the title shot without really being ready for the title shot. It's not like they, it's not like they couldn't get there. They're just not ready for it. You're like, you like, look at the match and you're like, Ugh. Yeah, it's almost yeah. kind of hard to watch this because I know that this person is not ready to fight the person that's, that holds the title right now. So that was like a similar situation. I think with uh, Cejudo and, and Demetrius, the, their first fight, I, I watched that fight and I'm like, I'm like, man, this guy's an Olympic level wrestler. Um, he's doing a pretty good job. Um, he doesn't have that much MMA experience. I bet you in a few years, like this guy could be a real problem for these people. And sure enough, I, I was hundred percent right about that. And I know, I don't think I said that publicly. So nobody, you know, it's not like <laughs> I told you so sort of thing or anything like that, but I'm just saying, I saw him. I'm like, there's a talented guy. He's going to be successful, but nobody, nobody knew who he was back then. Right. Like it wasn't really until he started doing all this again, quote unquote, cringy stuff that anybody even had a clue who he was. And I think it was a similar situation to what you were saying. I think that they were floating around the idea of just wholly getting rid of the 125 pound division. Yeah. And Cejudo was like, I'm not going to lay down and let this happen. And he fucking created a persona, man. And you know, <laughs> kudos, kudos to him. I mean, it's, it's fucking weird sometimes. And I watch these videos and I'm like, what, <laughs> what the actual fuck is happening. I have no idea, but I, I mean, again, he's, he's found a way to make it work. He, he gained some, a lot of success off of it. And you know, he, he had the, had the, um, the shit to back it up, right? Like he's a great fighter too. So, yeah, man, I love all that. So, so speaking of great fighters and earning your shots, man, what's next for you on uh, on one? Man, I'm hoping to get the title shot next. I know that Thon Lee had hurt his hand, um, so we're just kind of waiting, man. Um, we should have the title shot. I, you know, it's definitely been floated around the idea of me having that fight. So um, I'm just kind of playing a waiting game, making sure that you know uh, I'm healthy and hoping to hoping that he's healthy soon and. You know, hopefully that's the fight that, that we get to see. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a quick rise to the, to the title shot, but uh, I don't, I don't think it's going to be the same sort of situation that I was describing before. I don't think you're going to see me in there in the title shot and be like, oh man, he's not ready. Like, 
I, I think, I think we're there, man. You know, every day I get a little bit better. Like by no means am I at the, at the peak of my career right now, but I absolutely believe I'm ready for that title shot. So uh, I'm really excited for that. <clears throat> and I'm looking for it. I'm, I'm positive. It's going to happen by the end of the year. I just don't, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later, I would say let's cross our fingers for August. You know, at, at one point, at one point it was supposed to be April, then June, then July, you know, so let's, let's assume August at this point. I don't know. We'll see. Nice, man. Well, I'll definitely be rooting for you and pulling for you and helping promote it as much as I can. I had a uh, one last training question before I just kind of wrap this up for you. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. While, while you and I were talking the last time, I didn't realize like simultaneously Joe Rogan had, uh, had Gordon on. And then I guess Lex Friedman had um, John on and he yeah. was saying something when I was listening to the, to the podcast with John, he was talking about you training. And I thought it was really, um, I thought it was just interesting with, with how, just humble you are and just open for, for trying different things. A lot of stuff we were talking about. And he was saying how, like, when you go in, like 70% of the time, you're putting yourself starting out in these ridiculously unescapable, impossible positions. And there's these dudes that are coming in and walking out going, yeah, I tapped out Gary Tone. And it was like, well, yeah, but he's putting himself in these horrible situations when he's exhausted. So that way, when it really counts and it really matters, he's comfortable being in all those spots where other people really, they don't, their egos don't let them get put in those bad spots or get tapped out by blue belts on the mat. But so just that whole psychology behind training and I'd just love to hear your, your thought process behind it. Cause it's obviously brilliant. And I think everybody goes into the gym that day wanting to, Oh, I'm going to go in. I'm going to roll light today. I'm going to try. And then you start rolling and it's like, ah, you know, and you just don't do it, but you do. And it's obviously helping you. Yeah. Hey man, I have those days too. And I think there's a balance. Uh, I explain it to my students often um, that there is, uh, there's kind of like, there's, there's two things that need to be fed. I'm not gonna, I'm not about to have that two wolves conversation. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, there's, there's kind of two things that need to be fed. One is just like my general, um, improvement in the sport, right? Um, like I just, I'm just looking to get better. This is one of my goals every day. Like we're looking to get better. And then, uh, and, and that is like all, an all around thing. It could be, any number of different things. It could be escapes. It could be a specific, it could be a specific submission that I want to improve on, whatever it is, right? It's just good to have some sort of goal, right? When you go in there, but you're also, you also kind of just have a total goal of like, Hey man, I'm just sharpening the ax. I'm sharpening the ax. You know, I'm sharpening my fucking side control escapes, my mount escape, whatever it is, you know, we're trying to get that a little bit better. Um, and then this other piece is like the, the winning component. It's like, this is who I am when I, when I want to win. Right. And they're, they're kind of two different, um, two different things. And it's not that there's not a little bit of crossover between the two in training. I'm not saying you always have to be one or the other, but both components are kind of at work all the time. And when it comes to getting better at competition and winning, yeah, you're going to be trying to work on the skills that you know, you're going to be using in competition that you're best at, that you're most likely to threaten your opponent with right? It's like, Hey man, I have a really good guillotine. I got a really good rear naked choke. Let's develop a competition game surrounding those two movements and try to find as many ways as I can get into them as I possibly can. And that's going to make me the most dangerous competitor that I'm going to be. But if I spend all my time over here and that's all I'm doing, and I'm only uh, sharpening those skills, which I already know I'm very dangerous at everything else over here is just falling to the wayside. And now I got tons of cracks in the armor, right? And it's like, okay, well now all, all of these weaknesses can be exploited. And not only that, I funneled, you know, there's, there's these two attacks and it's like, Hey man, 
in jujitsu, you have a shit ton of fucking matches, man. Like, I don't know. In one championship loves for some reason, I'm not really sure why, to list my jujitsu record, uh, which I don't even know if it's accurate or if that <laughs> I don't know what my jujitsu record really is. I don't know. I don't even know where where do you start that? Like, do you start it at white belt? Do you start it at black belt? I I don't know. <laughs> is it only stuff that I got paid for? It's it's hard to say. There's no real standard. I think BJJ Heroes is the only one that keeps any record of anybody's records or you know uh, their wins and statistics. I think that's the only site uh, that I'm aware of that does that. And it's like, I don't know if they've ever released like, hey, here's what we, here's our rubric. Like, this is what we look for and this is where we start and that sort of thing. So who knows? But anyway, there's a shit ton of matches, right? If I'm really good at rear naked chokes and guillotines and that's all I use and I do that for fucking 10 years and you have 10 years of fucking match footage of me doing that over and over and over again and that's all I got, I mean it's not going to be hard to figure out how to beat me. You know, somebody that's intelligent and ingenuitive and, and you're like, Hey man, I'll let me avoid these couple areas and let me get good defensively at these couple things. And like, I think I'm going to be able to give this guy a tough time. And uh, a lot of people, that's kind of what they do. They get to a certain point. They've become very dangerous at a couple different things. And they're like, all right, we're just going to work with that now. Like that's the recipe for success. And it's like, sure. I don't think you should lose it, but I also think that you should spend your time, um, you know, working on, all of those other things that maybe you're not as good at that could eventually be those, you know, in that main uh, group where you're going to be practicing winning. Right. Um, so there's a little bit of both that needs to go on in the training room. Um, but in terms of the idea of not just working on things that you might not be the best at, but also like putting yourself, you're, you're talking about like in terrible positions, right? John had this analogy that he used um, to describe it. It was talking basically like tightrope walking or something like that. Right. And the idea is like, you know, if we put the tightrope down, um, maybe the tightrope's not an ex a good example. I forget what, exactly what it was. It was a plank. That's what it is. So the idea of walking a, a plank between two buildings, the reason the tightrope doesn't work is because the tightrope kind of has to do with being up in the air and wiggling and stuff like that. Let's <laughs> use the plank example instead. Plank doesn't move. Doesn't matter where it is, right? So you put a plank between two buildings, three stories high, and you try to walk across it and it's going to be pretty fucking hard. Okay. Um, for most people, unless you're insane. Okay. <laughs> um, regardless of whether or not you have good balance, you take a fucking gymnast and, and do it. Like they're probably going to be a little nervous fucking three stories up. Right. Um, but you know, kind of practicing that in a controlled environment, speaking of the gymnast, the one that's been on a balance beam a bunch of different times would probably have a, an edge over the average person who's going to do that, not just because they've gained the skill of being able to balance on a balance beam or something, you know, that's, that's difficult to balance on, but also because they've done it in a controlled, safer environment, right? And it's very similar to the very dangerous task that they're about to attempt, right? So that's kind of the process of getting put in bad positions in a training room. It's like, hey, man, I'm training with my friends, people that care about me, people that are not trying to fucking break my shit in half most of the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, they care about me certainly more than, than the average competitor cares about me. So now's the time to let my arm go and see if I can escape when my arm's fully extended. Now's the time to let them mount me and be fucking miserable and, you know, smothered underneath somebody. It's like, you know, and when I do that, every time I do that, I'm getting a little bit more comfortable with it. And then when you go to do it in the big show, when somebody is trying to hurt you and is trying to smother you or is trying to control you or whatever the case may be, 
you have that little bit more confidence. So you take that plank that was between the two buildings that was three stories high, you put that shit down on the floor and there's where there's no risk and you step over it a bunch of times and anybody can do it, right? But you start to raise it up a little bit. You start walking it, you get you build up your confidence and you increase that level over and over and over again. Like maybe I start giving my arm away to like, you know, somebody who's not as good at finishing an arm bar, or I tell that, that person, yeah, maybe just hold on to the arm. Don't really try to finish. And you, it's an escalation of danger and risk. And eventually you work yourself to that competition scenario and it feels, um, you know, so much more comfortable. It feels so much safer. So when you get up to that third story and the planks uh, between, yeah, it's still probably harder than even though the plank is the same when you put it on down on the ground, it's still probably harder, still probably scarier, still going to be some anxiety there, but much less so than if you had never practiced and if you had never had any level of danger and never took any level of risk, right? You know, then, then it's like, all right, well, if you never practice this and we throw you up there, I mean, you might have a fucking panic attack right there. And that's what happens in competition a lot. People just have full-blown fucking panic attacks when they get put in bad positions or get put in a submission. And I mean, dude, you see the shit in MMA happens all the time too. Like guys are fucking exhausted. Like the average MMA fighter knows how to defend a rear naked choke at least on like a little bit, you know, yet, what do you see every single time? One of these guys get not every time, but a lot of times some, one of these guys gets on somebody's back, they put both hands on the fucking floor and, and start standing up with their head <laughs> extended. And you're like, what the fuck is that? What are you doing, man? Like, you know, even when they haven't gotten like hit really hard ahead of time or anything like that, it's just like, dude, they're in like one of the worst positions possible. Somebody's on their back, they're teeing off on their face. So they're ripping strangles back and forth. They're like, that was not anywhere in their mind when they were preparing for that fight. They were like, oh man, I'm going to fucking knock them out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's like, dude, you got to visualize and prepare for some of those worst case scenario situations. This is, this is fucking, we're, we're at the highest level here, man. Like there's going to be people that are going to be able to put you in bad positions. And the last place, the last time I want to be practicing is when the person that I'm going against has bad intentions and they're very, very good. You know, like let's, let's, let's tone down the risk a little bit in the training environment when the person doesn't have bad intentions and maybe I can find some training partners that aren't as good, you know, that, uh, I, you know, it gives me a little bit more of a margin for error, you know, when I'm working out of these bad positions and submissions and that sort of thing. So I think that's kind of the process that anybody goes through when they're preparing to do some sort of feat that the average person looks at and they're like, holy shit, how the fuck did that guy do like, <laughs> walk between a building on a tightrope. Like, what is he insane? Oh, uh, here's a great example. I know I have ADHD, so I bounce all over the place, but I, I think better it. like that. I'm following you. Like I'm with it. Draw right back to it. Uh, <laughs> free, free solo, the movie. Yes. Great movie. Um, it was completely ruined by the fact that there, this girlfriend was in it. Uh, <laughs> she was a total asshole. And I like, I wish for only the worst for her in life. Um, <laughs> the guy in the the guy in the movie, I, I hope they're broken up by now. I don't think they are. I'm pretty sure they ended up getting married. It's it's, it's a horrible <laughs> thing. Poor guy. But anyway, um, one of the interesting things about it is he uses the same process. Like the dude didn't go free solo El Capitan with no ropes, nothing, the first time he fucking tried it. Like, no, like the dude climbed the route a million fucking times. He thinks about it every fucking day. So he did it with equipment, with safety. A ton of times failed a bunch of times you see the guy falling at intermittent points he's like yeah part a b and c these three points are my most these are gonna be the most dangerous spots for me i really got to figure out how there's there's three different ways that i can attack each of these spots and 
Uh, I think I have an 80% chance of, of doing it this way. Let's stick with that way and let's practice that way. And then by the end of it all, you know, you don't, you can only see it so much in the context of a movie. It's kind of like montaged out, but by the end of it all, you know, he, he climbs the whole thing with no ropes. And it's like, well, that was his process. It, it almost doesn't seem as crazy. Like it's still insane. It's still the dude's <laughs> climbing a giant mountain with no ropes. And like, it's a very, very hard route that like a lot of people couldn't do with ropes, but but he made it a manageable risk by practicing it under some level of safety, um, you know, over and over and over again and, and constantly workshopping it and constantly preparing. And that's kind of what I try to do. That's my strategy with jujitsu. I love that, man. That makes so much sense. And that is a perfect analogy for it. I'm, I'm all about it, man. Great stuff. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. I appreciate you sharing that. And, uh, you know, again, wrapping up here, I like to call this the Victory Lab. I just hit a couple last questions. One of them is, do you have a, a favorite quote? Oh, favorite quote. Um, hmm. There's probably some good ones from Niccolo Machiavelli, to be fair. But I, those are kind of often used, so I don't really want to. I don't want to steal from him. Um, hmm. um, I'm trying to think of the exact one that I want here. Um, I like this one from John um, specifically. This is just very much pertains. Actually, I'll, I'll tell you the one one for life and then one for my sport. Okay, the one for life that I really like um, is is it actually it's considered a prayer. But even if you're not religious, I'm sure you can kind of see the um, why this is a good general life credo. Um, it's called a serenity prayer. Um, God, give me the courage to change the things I uh, or sorry, give me the serenity. Um, to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I like the idea of that. I might get that tattooed on me at some point. I have no tattoos right now, but it's, it's been something I wanted to do for a long time. Um, my grandpa used to tell me and when I was like age 10, and I was like, yeah, whatever, crazy old guy. And uh, <laughs> uh, it wasn't until after he had, had died, uh, you know, and there had been a few years, sometime around like 15, 16, where I started thinking about it. I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. I like this a lot because um, it kind of embodies the way that I think about life. It's like, hey, man, there's going to be some shit that I have no control over. And uh, that, that's some shit that I'm going to have to accept, right? But there are definitely things in almost every scenario that I do have some control over. So let's focus on those things, right? And it's like, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good idea to follow that, you know, general example. It's like, why dwell on all this shit that I can't change? right? Like, does it really help? Like, 
I will say that, you know, somebody that's now going to counseling and, and has been working through a lot of different emotional stuff, does it help to talk about those things to your friends, complain a little bit here and there, get the shit off your chest? Absolutely. Process your shit. Don't just keep it all inside. But there's a difference between processing your stuff and not keeping it inside and all that stuff. There's a difference between doing that and letting it hold you back and just thinking about that all the time and letting that define you and allowing that to, to change your life in a, um, in a negative way. And uh, that's when it comes, it comes to play, like the idea of constantly thinking about, all right, well, what can I change? What do I have control over? And just focusing on that and doing it the best you can with what you were given, what your res whatever resources you have to, because you are the only person that you can control, can't control anybody else, you know? And that's just, that's something that I think about in almost every aspect of life. I'm always, all right, what can I do? What can I do? You know, and how am I, you know, even when, uh, you know, I have, I run a business, right? Like I have my jujitsu school. When one of my employees fails, don't get me wrong. I talk shit. I'll tell them <laughs> they're a retard. I'll say all kinds of terrible things to my employees. I have no issues doing that. Probably I do it too much. Don't get me wrong. Okay. I definitely criticize people, but in my brain, I, I don't just think about, Hey, that dude fucked up. And this is just something that just recently happened to me. I don't think, Hey, that dude fucked up. I also think to myself, it's like, wait, is there any part in this that I play a role in? Like, is there something that I could be doing better that would make it less likely that that person would fuck up in that way, right? And how, what can I do to change that? Because I can't control him. I can criticize him and maybe, maybe I affect his behavior, right? Like that might help, right? I'm not, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say it, it won't, but I also have to sit back and think like, hey man, like, am I leading the right way? Am I setting up the right expectations? Like, have I, have I given him a proper outline for like what it is that I actually want him to do? Because if I haven't, I mean, of course he's not going to meet my expectations. He doesn't even know what they are, right? So I'm just saying like, it's something that I think about even when, you know, uh, it's something where it seems like I can point the finger directly at this person that's to blame. I still look within myself and go, hey, like what part of it, what part of this can you help with? Like what part of this, what can you do, right? So for life, I like that one. For jiu-jitsu and for um I mean, I suppose you could use it in, in a bunch of different contexts, maybe martial arts, we could say. Um, John says, uh, knowledge doesn't win fights, habits do. And I really, really like that one. Um, and the reason I really like that one is because it helps me compartmentalize the idea of understanding my sport, which I love. Like, I really like the idea of really getting into the details and the nitty gritty and understanding what I'm doing. And I do think that that helps you excel as an athlete overall. But the main thing it helps you with is being able to convey information from one person to the next, the knowledge aspect of things, understanding your sport, right? But you can have all the knowledge in the world. I could fucking give you a computer chip. I could give you the, the matrix shit, right? Right to your head. I could give you every fucking move and you, you would know every fucking detail and all those sorts of things. But if it wasn't ingrained in your system, if it wasn't something that you did every fucking day and you were constantly doing that series of movements and constantly um, you know, doing, um, you know, that escape or that attack or whatever the case may be, when you get out there on the stage, it's just not pre-programmed information. You don't have the time to process and think about everything that's happening in that live fighting type of situation. That's what's so interesting about, um, you know, something like martial arts, mixed martial arts or jujitsu or whatever. It's, it's problem solving under some extreme stress, right? 
yeah, are there moments where you get to think and stop and, and process things and maybe some knowledge would be helpful there? Absolutely. But by far and away, the most important thing is like, man, what have I actually been working on? What have I actually been doing in the gym every goddamn day? Uh, and if I haven't been doing whatever, uh, whatever it is, I'm you're not going to see it most likely when, you, when I go out there on the stage or, uh, or I, I go out there in the ring or cage or whatever the case may be. Right. So I thought that that was a really important and insightful um, distinction that he made. Um, so I really like that quote for my martial art. That's a great one, man. I love both of those. And I, I agree with everything you said. Um, is there advice you would give knowing all the things you've done now in life that you would give a younger Gary Tone if he came up to you and asked you for advice today? It's funny because I've been asked that before. I, I don't really know for sure. I, I think, you know, in terms of life, like in terms of life advice, uh, I definitely think that as a younger, as a younger man, I had mentioned to you this before that I was much more, I was much more insular. I kept a lot more things in that, and I didn't talk about them to a lot of people. Um, you know, and I, I mainly only used, you know, comedy as an outlet. And that was like the only way that I would talk <laughs> about very serious things. And I, I like that still to this day. I think that's awesome. Um, but I, I, I wish that uh, the younger Gary Tone and maybe would have uh, seen the value in having some conversations with, uh, it, with uh, people that he cared about um, in having a more open dialogue about, uh, you know, some of the things that were, were going on in his life. And I think I, it would have been a lot easier to get, um, to get past and to, to heal from a lot of different things that had happened in my life. And uh, I would, you know, similar thing I would say to anybody, but I think that was something that me specifically, I needed at that time. Some people are super empathetic people and super in touch with their emotions and they have no problem with that sort of stuff. And, and maybe that that comes very natural to them. And, or maybe they had a, uh, you know, a person in their life that that taught them to do that, and it made it a little bit easier for them. Uh, but for me, it, it wasn't the case. It didn't come very naturally to me. It wasn't something that I, I was always just kind of get up and go like, you know, whatever happens, like, we're just going to move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. And it helped me excel on a success level, but it definitely started to weigh heavy for for many, many years, you know, it was just uh, a big chip on the shoulder. And, and, uh, that would be, that would definitely be something I would like to say to a, to a younger me. And also just like, Hey man, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> like, Cause you spend a lot of fucking time, you know, freaking out and worrying over a lot of different things and having a lot of anxiety about a lot of stuff. And, and uh, I just wish, you know, I would have, would have, would have taken it all in. I, I think I mentioned this to you or maybe earlier in our, in our podcast. Uh, if I can remember correctly about just, you know, stopping to smell the roses. A little oh bit. yeah. Yeah. We talked a lot about that. Maybe doing that a little bit more uh, than I did for sure. Cool, man. Well, that's awesome. And the last thing is uh, talk about how people find you. I am going to do a, a giveaway. I'm going to buy wh whatever DVDs of your choice. I'm going to get three of them and I'll figure out what the people have to do for them. But um, okay. yeah, you let me know which one and then just tell people how do they find your, your school, your clothing, your DVDs, like what's the best ways to connect with Gary Tony. Uh, best ways to connect with me usually are through Instagram. Uh, that's when I'm where I'm the most active. I do a little bit of work on Twitter. Um, I'm not particularly active on Facebook. You catch me there here and there, but um, you know, I, mean, I obviously have a page and stuff. Um, what was I going to say? Um, my business email is toninseminar at Gmail. I have my, uh, I have my manager kind of sort through that stuff. Um, it's not guaranteed to put you in direct contact with me, but you know, somebody's looking through that at least, you know, my personal email, everything gets buried. So even if I, I'm not giving that to anybody, but even if I, I'm sure it's out there, but <laughs> even if I gave that to you, there's no guarantee you're going to get in touch with me. So like Instagram is pretty good, you know, um, 
also just, you know, a lot of the other people in my life. Uh, that's how a lot of people end up getting in contact with me is funneling information through somebody else that's close to me <laughs> that has less of a social media following. Um, you know, send one of them a message and, uh, and sometimes it's a little bit easier for them to sift through their messages and they'll, they'll mention it to me. So go bother all my teammates, you know, look on my Instagram, see who I tag people in and shit. And, uh, <laughs> go bother all my teammates and, and that's how you'll get in touch with me. But yeah, man. Um, as far as the giveaway is concerned, yeah, maybe we'll do the, I don't know, I guess the most recent DVD makes the most sense, but cool. Awesome. Yeah. And everybody can get those, those run on BGJ Fanatics, right? Yeah, yeah, BJJ Fanatics, that's the best way to find. So yeah, I mean, best way to contact me is through all those social media sources. But as far as buying DVDs is concerned, you go to BJJ Fanatics. As far as the apparel is concerned, uh, you got cashchickschampionships.com and then you've got uh, garytonenjujitsu.com and you got to go through the, to the shop because that's my that's my jiu-jitsu school's website. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, the Gary Tonin jiu-jitsu stuff, I think we just did a pre-order, so everything's probably sold out right now. Uh, but we'll have more stuff in the future. It's not a bad website to just check out and, you know, see what's going on there. Um, Cash Six Championships, I think we're, or we're waiting for some new apparel to drop as well. So, uh, but BJJ Fanatics, you can always buy DVDs. That's for sure. You know, those never run out because there's digital copies as well. So Nice, man. What a great freaking name, man. Cash Six Championships. I love that. Thank you. And, and obviously my, my favorite shirt right now. Yeah, man. Favorite grappler. I appreciate it, man. You're an absolute stud, man. You've been really great with your time. This has been a really great conversation for me and I appreciate you just being Thank so you. cool about everything, man. You're, you're really a class act and uh, I appreciate it. And I'm definitely always rooting for you always in your corner. I hope you, you do big things out and off the mats, man. Any final thoughts before I let you go? Uh, no, sir. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I, I had a great time. Thanks, man. Gary, totally. Ladies and gentlemen.